BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. This is Tony Hernandez, and you're listening to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Each week, we dig through our collection of immigrant interviews to bring you the voices behind some of our most memorable conversations. If you enjoy the stories we share and want to help us bring you more, please join with hundreds of other donors and make a tax-deductible contribution to the Immigrant Archive Project. Thanks to many of you, we've been able to collect thousands of immigrant testimonies, which are now being proudly archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. If you'd like to help us expand our work, please go to immigrantarchiveproject.org and click on the donate button. That's immigrantarchiveproject.org and click on the donate button. Thank you. I'm Tony Hernandez, and once again, you're listening to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. My guest this week is American actor, director, and producer, Edward James Olmos. Born in 1947 to a Mexican immigrant father and a Mexican-American mother, Olmos credits the diversity of his East LA neighborhood with his deep-rooted belief that there is only one race, the human race. As a teen, Olmos used his love of baseball to circumvent street gangs and the drugs that permeated his environment. After discovering music, he taught himself to sing and play the piano well enough to actually join a local band, the Pacific Ocean. The band, which only recorded one album, enjoyed reasonable success, but more importantly, it gave Eddie almost the opportunity to discover his love of entertaining an audience. In 1978, almost landed a pivotal role in a stage production of Zoot Suit, which opened with an expected run of just 10 days. The show ran for a full year before moving to Broadway, and by the time it closed, almost had earned a Tony nomination. A few years later, almost joined the cast of the wildly popular Miami Vice TV series and earned an Emmy Award for his portrayal of Lieutenant Martin Castillo. With his newfound fame, almost made a small budget film with a hugely important message, 1988 Stand and Deliver, which earned him an Academy Award nomination. Olmos has endeared himself to millions of Latino fans the world over by constantly vowing to never accept a role that demeaned Latinos or the Latino community, even if it means taking a pass on a major payday. Today, Edward James Olmos sits on a variety of different boards and works with a number of leading nonprofit organizations. He's received honorary doctorate degrees from countless universities from coast to coast, 
and was even honored by both Harvard and Yale universities. So after that long-winded introduction, here's my conversation with the one and only Edward James Olmos. My father was an immigrant. He came here in 1945. The day the war ended, he was on the train coming over. And um, it was monumental, man. I mean, he says that people were going nuts. He couldn't speak English. And he was on the train coming in from Mexico City all the way to Los Angeles on the train. And, uh, you know, he had uh, come and, you know, he had married my mother. My mother was an American citizen. She was born and raised here in Los Angeles. She was a Chicana. I'm second generation on her side. First generation of my father's born here. First almost. Has your father's immigrant experience impacted you in any way? I, I think it really, the, his experience was one of total fortitude and, and total reliance and, and un, resilience, I should say, not reliance, resilience on, on being able to cope with an incredible understanding of life. Uh, he was a hard worker. He came in and, and immediately, he had his own business. He had his own business back and he left it to his brothers. He's one of 14, he's the only one that came. And um, he worked, um, he, was a, he was about five foot two, five foot three, you know, very thin man, very s s small man. And, uh, but man, what a worker, what an, his, his ethics are just incredible. First job he had was in the meatpacking house. And he had to carry pieces of beef on his shoulders that weighed more than he did. And huge pieces of, they'd just throw them on your back. And he did that for a while. And he was up to, I remember, he was up to his, halfway up his leg in blood, mixed with water, water and blood, kind of like, you know, that's where they had to walk in. And the way the place was, the, 1940s and early 50s. He um, he didn't last there too long. It's just too, it took it took its toll on him. And um, he got an opportunity to go learn a trade. He learned uh, welding. Now here's a man who had spent his life in uh, uh, pharmaceutical distribution. That's what their company was. So they used to sell, you know, different pharmaceutical goods to the pharmacies. They were a distributor, a distributor. And uh, they distributed, uh, and so he was a, a, a white collar worker. He was, it wasn't a blue collar. Here he came and, and left all of the security of his family and everything. He came over here and following my mom. And um, they went forward and tried to commit themselves to, to this life. And it was hard on him. It was really, really, really difficult. And it was not uh, an easy journey. Even though Spanish is spoken here, he uh, tried like crazy to speak English. And even to the day he passed away and at the age of 74, he sp still spoke with a solid accent. Never got over the accent. And um, he went to the sixth grade, had a sixth grade education. And when he got here, he uh, ended up um, literally uh, becoming a welder. And I tried working that once. I tried to do that when I was 16 years old, 15, 16 years old. I was in a rock and roll band. And, 
And he said, you should get a real job. You should come see what I do and how I do it. And I'd visited him before. So I went and I worked there a month at the, at the shop, welder shop, as a, um, <clears throat> as a sweeper. I would sweep the, the, the entire place. And uh, it just, it was too much. My father would go into a tank that maybe was, uh, I don't know, 36 inches in diameter, you know, about 36 inches round. He'd slide in and he, with the welding and the, and the, 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 it was an electrical welder and he'd walk, he'd go slide, he'd crawl into the tank and he would do the, because he was so small, he would do the inside welds on the tank. They were huge linear tanks that, uh, um, they would use to put uh, either petroleum or gas, you know, natural gas. They were really solid pieces of work, tanks, and, and the welding was precisioned. It was, there could be no cracks, no nothing. It was really high-end welding, but it was just, you gotta remember we're in California, Southern California, man. In the summer, it's like 102, 103, and so inside that tank, inside of those things, it was 120, 125 degrees. And he would uh, come out, man, he was just completely sopping. And I would see him and he'd come out and his face would be, he had the big hood that comes across here, plus all the gloves and all the cloth material he had to own because it was just, you know, you put a spark of electrical coil onto with the, with the, the, uh, with the welding the solder and it just ignites it and just and it's just sparking everywhere so it was fire all around him as he's in this little 36 inch tank and he did that for 25 years till he almost lost his eyesight and then he went back to school and I remember when he started going back to school it was a, a real testament of, of understanding of life I remember I was in the seventh grade and he was uh, going to school and I would join him and I would sit there doing my math and my English homework and stuff and I'd look across and there he'd be sitting there at a desk and the teacher would be teaching them and, and there would be older people all around him, people that couldn't even fit the desks. They were too big, you know, and they, but they were squashed in there. And I took a look around and I said, wow, man, education must really be important because these people are really, because my father works his ass off every day, 10 hours a day, six days a week. And he still comes here after that and goes to class. And I said, hmm. So he ended up in 1960, he graduated from high school and uh, with his GED. And I graduated from junior high and I never looked back. I graduated from high school, never thought about checking out, went to the East LA Community College in Cal State LA. I have dyslexia, so I couldn't really get into a major institution. I didn't know I had it then. It was just, we weren't even diagnosed. I didn't get diagnosed till my, one of my children was six, seven years old. And then they told me I had it. But my father really became the uh, real uh, epitome of the American dream because after he, 25 years of welding, he retired and became a postal clerk and worked in the post office for 20 years, six days a week. 
from uh, 12 midnight to 12 and the next day. So it was a real, a really interesting uh, life that he gave me by example. He set a really tremendous example. Based on your own experience, how would you say um, you could summarize the immigrant experience in America? I think that, uh, you know, the immigrant story is one of total triumph. It doesn't mean that they always succeed, but uh, they do definitely come here to work. I've never seen uh, in 63 years, and I've lived in LA for a long, all my whole life. I've lived in spurts in New York, I've lived in Miami, I've lived in Vancouver, lived in New Mexico. I've lived in different places, but I've never seen a Latino panhandle. I've never seen them out begging for money, you know, on the street corner. I've seen them selling oranges. I've seen them selling things, but I've never seen them ever. And uh, I'd be hard pressed to find anybody that's really ever seen someone, a Latino that's, you know, with his hand out asking for money. They don't come here to, to beg or steal. That doesn't mean that they haven't come here and done their set of understandings and, you know, crime, but that's, Human nature at its most corrupt, you know, and it doesn't just deal with one culture. <laughs> it comes in all cultures. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that the immigrant in this country has really put forth from the first boat people that came across, the pilgrims and, you know, Santa Maria and Christopher Columbus. They came here and they migrated here. And, uh, and many of them immigrated and stayed. And they worked, they worked hard. The Europeans worked hard. The Asians work hard. Everybody that comes here works hard. There's no free ride in the United States. Not when you're starting. You start like everybody else. And it's a hard road because whenever you leave your comfort zone and you leave your language and you come to a place that you don't know anything or anybody, it's a really difficult journey. Out of all your remarkable roles, man, my favorite character has always been that of Jaime Escalante in Stand and Deliver. Jaime Escalante was an immigrant and boy, what a story he had. How much of your own life experience would you say you brought to that role? Well, it was really easy to understand his passion. You know, just watching my father, I understood the passion of an immigrant. But also the fact that, you know, I knew his story. I knew Jaime Escalante's story. I, I worked with him for over a year. You know, I'd, been, I'd known him. I knew him the, uh, I met him. Um, at the NAACP's annual award, national award ceremony, in which he received the Teacher of the Year Award, and I received the Humanitarian of the Year Award. The year was 1983, and it was about July, June, July. And in May is when they had done the incredible feat of, you know, 
the students took, 18 students took the AP Advanced Calculus test and passed it. And they all came from a high school here in East LA. And it was the first time that they'd ever gotten that kind of recognition at that level. The year was 1983. And then I met him that day and I was very proud because it flashed all over the country. It was a shot heard all over this nation. And uh, then in about August, they were accused of cheating. And uh, that was a shot heard around the world. They got more press for the fact that they were accused of cheating than they did when they actually did the event, you know, and actually did the incredible deed that they did. And they ended up uh, where, uh, because they had to take the test over again within just one day to prepare, take a harder test than the one that they did. And then they passed it, it became monumental. And it was something that just drove people to the zenith of understanding the capabilities of inner city school kids and kids that weren't really judged to be able to handle this kind of thought and brain thrust and just completely annihilated them, just destroyed it. And that man went on to, and this is one of the great things about that movie, you see the ending tag as he's walking away and you, I'm, I always get really teary-eyed when I see it because it was really an incredible moment as he's walking down the hall, his back towards us and he's walking away. He just learned that all the kids passed the examination again and passed it with some with higher scores than they had before and uh, a harder test. And, uh, and there's a thing that says uh, in 1983, Garfield High School had 18 students take the AP calculus test and then the dates flip, 84, was 37. 85, there was 52. 86, there was 67. 87, there was 87 kids that took that examination and passed it out of his class. And it went on. I think when he retired, he was teaching 250 kids a year to take that examination and pass it. The largest, and I think Stuyvesant was the only place that even got close to being school that could compare with the amount of kids that were taking that examination, the advanced placement test, which is a test that is really difficult. And here was a man who left the comfort zone of, he was a, an engineer in uh, Bolivia and a great, great, great mind. And he came here and he had to go back to school. He had to get all of his credentials over again. So he went back and started, uh, uh, he was a custodian he was a, a, he would mop the floors of the, uh, uh, um, it's a restaurant right there on Atlantic Boulevard. The, it has a, like a, uh, oh God, a Hollandish kind of a house on top of it. I forgot the name of the uh, restaurant. It's, it's like one of those Danish places, okay? And he, he would mop the floors. That was his job. He was the custodian there. He was the, and he did that for to make money so that he could go to school. And he was still, he had children. He had a child and he had a wife and he was married and brought them all here. And eventually after, uh, it didn't take him 
four years to get his credentials because he was so smart that, you know, he got through it, I think in three, two and a half, three years, he was, he got all of his credentials here. And then went on to get a job, a very good job. And uh, he became uh, an engineer and uh, started to develop software for computers and created some really prolific pieces of, of uh, you know, software for the company he was working for and made them millions and millions of dollars. And when he had uh, enough money socked away, he says, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to teach. And he then went into, it said he volunteered to come in and become a teacher. And they sent him to Garfield High School. And man, it was that was a school that was losing its accreditation, as we showed in the movie. He was supposed to teach computer science and they had no computers. So they put him in remedial math, math 101. And he ended up teaching math 101. And he went into the classroom and they was out of control. The whole, thing, the whole school was out of control. It was being closed down. It was gonna be closed that year. And uh, he just, uh, at about a third of the way through the, the first month, he just said, I can't do this. And you guys can't do this. And I'm gonna teach you because I think you guys really can do this. And he set a level of expect, he set a level of expectation that really just motivated the kids. And he was such a, an incredible, uh, trustworthy person that these you know kids who were really looking for direction, they really were, uh, believed in, in his sincerity and his truth and trusted him enough to take the journey. And it took him three years. It took him three years with these kids. He changed the whole school. Everybody started to look at the kids differently. And then by the time they took the examination on their final senior year, it was all over, man. These kids were like, they had been working, you know, they worked all summer. They, they, they did classes, all, they had to catch up. Remember, these kids were in remedial math and they had to go through algebra, geometry, algebra three, four, trigonometry, math analysis to get into calculus. You know, there was just no two ways around it. You had to go through the steps of those mathematical understandings in order to understand calculus and advanced placement calculus. It's just not just calculus. You're taking advantage, you're taking college credit and uh, passing it. And that's what he did. And he did it. And boy, the rest was history. And he did it again, perfect example of an immigrant who comes not to uh, do anything other than to give more than he receives. And he just felt that the United States, and I totally agree with him, was the truly the land of opportunity. This is the best country, one of the best, one of the best if not the best country on the planet. Only because of that, we have a middle class. It's declining, but we still have it. And that middle class allows the lower, you know, the poverty stricken people to, if they can grab hold and hold on and do something, can elevate themselves into that lower middle class status. And then from there, start to, with education, pull themselves up and move up towards the ladder. When you're in a third world, the reason it's a third world is because there is no middle class. You have the elite rich that govern and control everything, and everybody else lives below the poverty line, and they're all just pawns for the wealth. And that's why Mexico is the way it is. 
because they are a third world nation and they live in a first world country. That country is filled with nothing but natural resources and wealth that comes, well, the richest man in the world lives there. <laughs> he figured out and he's never invented anything and he still is very, very wealthy. He's not a Gates who invented, you know, something that in, ends up giving you the access of the planet buying your your product, you know. So it's quite interesting. I have to say, man, I see a lot of you in Jaime Escalante and vice versa, right? I mean, both of you are champions of the underdog and tireless supporters of the Latino community. But my question is, at what point in your life would you say you went from being Edward James almost the actor, right, to Edward James almost bearer of the torch for Latinos? Again, we have to go back. The process of becoming who you are, it, it's the influences of everything that's around you. So my great-grandparents are really the stepping stone in which I started my life. Not that my parents didn't have an incredible amount of input into who I am today. Or my grandparents, he was fantastic. My great grand, my grandfather was an extraordinary, extraordinary man on my mother's side. I never met my, uh, my grandparents on my father's side. Um, but I have to start from the very beginning and the beginning was one of the examples that I felt from the very beginning of the, the kind of upbringing that I was getting at my house. And the environment has everything to do with it. And then, of course, the outside environment comes into play. But I was very lucky. I got into uh, sports at a very young age. At the age of six, I was playing. And uh, that helped me out a lot. It let me walk through the minefields of peer pressure, you know, becoming part of the gang, the local street gang. Because we lived on a street that was that was bordered by three very notorious and very well-respected and very well-known gangs. You know, Primera, was the White Fence, and Lomita. And it was just really incredible, you know, the whole understanding of what was around us. But I, I was playing ball, so my gang was on, on the ball field. I heard you were actually pretty good with the bat. Yeah, I was. I was really good with the bat. I could hit anything. I, I learned to play with uh, Japanese kids, that, uh, my neighbors, and they played uh, very good, really good. They had older brothers. And my, the guy who was my age, Saburo Takahashi, was uh, really brilliant, was fast and very, very athletic. He was the third of, of, of the brothers, there was three brothers, Kenjo, Hiroshi, and Saburo, Takahashi brothers. So the influence came by way of Japan, not by way of Mexico or the Latino influence. Well, my grandfather played it. My grandfather played ball. He was a great ball player himself. And uh, got to the point where he was the one who really taught me a lot about the game, how to play it. But batting, <laughs> like nothing I've ever experienced. It was the best. I mean, it was, it was impossible not to become really, really good. We were very young and we'd stand about, I'd say 10 feet away from each other. And the older brothers were at least six to seven years older than we were. 
and uh, one of them, I guess they were maybe about 14 and 12, and we were like six and seven. And uh, we would play with them, and they were already playing with the, uh, what they call the Tokyo Giants here in East L.A. And they were all Japanese kids that played really intense baseball. And uh, very, very, they loved the game. They really played well. And uh, we would practice and practice every day, seven days a week. Never, never missed a day that we weren't playing baseball. From the time we started to play the game all the way through the age of 14, I played it every day, seven days a week. People don't quite understand what that means. You know, I think people that are great musicians who woodshed every day, seven days a week, they don't take any vacation. They, they always are playing their instruments someplace and thinking about music or talking, either talking about it, doing it, watching people do it or, or reading about it or doing something. That's, we used to do the same thing with baseball. So every day you were inside of the sport or the music or whatever it was that you were doing. And in this case, it was baseball. And, and um, we would stand about 10 feet away from each other with a wiffle ball. Now, a wiffle ball is a ball that has like little holes in it. And if you throw it, it goes all over the place. It's really kind of hard to hit, okay? But the brothers would put sock around the ball, cloth, a sock, and sew it. So the ball had substance, a little bit more than a wiffle ball would, but it still had lighter than a hard ball, and it was made out of rubber, and it had cloth around it, so it had weight. And then we, they would throw it, they would throw it really hard, 100 miles an hour, maybe more, because we were so close, and these kids were really good ball players, so they would throw with full force, and you'd stand there, and you were supposed to hit it. Well, there was a trick. You never moved your body. You kept your body still, and it was all the wrists. Boom, that's all you would do, you just boom. You wouldn't try to swing, you couldn't, you couldn't get your better up. It was impossible. So you'd stand there like this, and you'd watch the ball, boom, you'd just go like that, boom. And just put the bat, boom, wherever the ball was, boom, you just hit the ball, boom. And then I started to hit it. And we play that every day. And pretty soon, you go on the baseball field, the guy's 60 feet away and he's throwing the ball. I don't give a damn how fast he thinks he's throwing it. This is, that's a no brainer. Excuse me. I think I'll put it over there. And you could put it anywhere you wanted to put it. I could put it anywhere. By the time I was 12 years old, 11, 12 years old, I was a state batting champion. Golden State Batting Champion of the State of California for two years in a row. Mm -hmm. Just, um, you know, out of sheer understanding of discipline, determination, perseverance, and patience. The key ingredient to being all that you can be in this lifetime. And it was taught to me by, you know, immigrants who had to do that. They had no choice. So by then you had your 10,000 hours in at bat. Oh, forget 10,000. I am forget it i i did well over ten thousand hours for that bat and people used to be like in shock you know because they wouldn't quite understand where i came from i never hit a home run ever ever i always let off they'd always walk me just so they keep my batting average down because it was so high and if you put it anywhere close i could get the ball you know like you know darth vader and and, and those guys when they had those the game of doom 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 well we could play that 
I could do that. I could stand there. I remember I, just recently, I hadn't picked up a bat in quite a few years, and I walked into an 80-mile-an-hour pitching arm, an automatic pitcher, you know, the, at the thing, and I, boom, started hitting it. Boom! I said, well, I guess it doesn't go It's like riding a bike. <laughs> you know, and I could never hit it hard. I, it wasn't about hitting it hard. It was about placing the ball where the people weren't. The guy's playing me, the shortstop's playing extremely to the left. Well, then I'll just put it right up the middle. Bink! Right over, for, right over the pitcher's head, right hit the bag or a little bit beyond that, and nobody could get it, you know. And if they started to play me towards the, the, the center, you know, as if they were going to guard me the next time and I'd come up the bat, they would move now towards second base and, and, and the <laughs> shortstop and, and the guy would move back and towards second base. And I stand there and go, okay, well, now I got a hole between third and, and shortstop. Watch this. Boom! And right through me too, because he couldn't get to the ball in time. And the same thing. I mean, it was really, it was really easy to play the game when you had that much understanding of it. Oh, it was great. It was great. And my, you know, everybody thought, and rightfully show. So I was catching Eddie Roebuck and Sandy Koufax by the time I was 14 years old, 13 and 14 years old, in the California Sun League. We're playing with the Knopp brothers, Bobby and Gary. And Bobby went on to be the coach for the Angels for 10, 12 years. And uh, God, there was so many great ballplayers came out of the east side. Oh, man. Really was, you know, and everybody thought I was going to be a ball player. I did too at that time. And then I got into, the year was 1960. And I used to play for five teams. If the first team didn't need me, I'd play with the second. If the first and second didn't need me, I'd play with the third. If the first, second, or third team didn't need me, I'd play with the fourth. If the four didn't need me, I'd play with the fifth. And the fifth team was willing to use me once every two or three weeks if I come over and play with them. And so I had a double header during the summer almost every day playing intense baseball, constantly playing baseball. I was a catcher, second base, both. And I played every position, so I really knew it well. My grandfather was a great ball player, I told you that, and he taught me how to play everything. It was really simple. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. If you enjoy the stories we share and want to help us bring you more, please join with hundreds of other donors and make a tax-deductible contribution to the Immigrant Archive Project. Thanks to many of you, we've been able to collect thousands of immigrant testimonies, which are now being proudly archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. 
If you'd like to help us expand our work, please go to immigrantarchiveproject.org and click on the donate button. That's immigrantarchiveproject.org and click on the donate button. Thank you. And at what point did baseball stop becoming your future? When I heard rock and roll. I heard Little Richard. I heard Elvis Presley. I heard, you know, I heard uh, <laughs> God Almighty. Oh, that must have driven your father crazy. Oh, oh, my father. My father who went to every single practice and saw me every single day of his life out there on the ball field, went to everything. He loved it. He sat there on the bleachers, you know, so proud. He didn't talk to me for two years. Two years it took him for him to get it together and forgive me, just to know that I was serious about my music. And at 14, I, I hung up my cleats and uh, put away my hat and my bat and my glove and uh, went out and started singing with my next door neighbor, Danny Diaz, and started singing rock and roll. The revolution. Well, that's what we ended up being, yeah. First year, I think it was the Carpetbaggers. And then it became the Pacific Ocean because that was the biggest thing on the West Coast. So we became that. And we played uh, seven nights a week for four years at Gazzari's. We followed uh, The Doors, <clears throat> Pat Lolly Vegas, The Doors, Pat Lolly Vegas, and then us. And The Doors had stayed there six months. And then we came in and stayed for four years. And Jim Morrison and everybody used to come over and jam with us and play with us. And Mark Benno and all these great musicians would come in and just jam. It was, you know, we, we held the stage for four years, seven nights a week, you know, three sets, three 45 minute sets a night. Making, I think the first we started off with $30 a week. That's what we started off at. First it was free. We worked there for free for two weeks and then. Bill Gazzari started handing us $30 a week per, per, play, per, per player. We had, you know, there was five of us. And then there was four. Then we cut down when, when Jimi Hendrix, the experience came out with, we had, we got, um, hey, we got uh, Purple Haze before it hit the United States. A friend of mine had gotten it and we listened to it. And my guitar player, Ken Henry, may he rest in peace. Um, was a brilliant guitar player and he picked up Jimmy's style and pretty soon we were sounding like the, you know, the experience. <laughs> we cut back down to one bass, one drummer and the guitar player and me lead singing. And, uh, and that was the sound. And so people, when they heard, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> when they heard us playing, you know, you know, all of Jimi Hendrix's stuff, they thought it was our records. Yeah, and of course it wasn't. It was Jimi Hendrix, you know. But Jimi played at the uh, Whiskey. Um, the Galaxy was playing, you know, different groups, uh, Iron Butterfly, and some really classic groups of the period in time. Taj Mahal, you know, they, a lot of play, people played the Galaxy, and then Gazaris, and the Gazaris was, you know, we were the headlining band. But uh, there was a lot of groups that played there alongside. It was I can Tina Turner, you know, major people came to play. And then we went from uh, there, we went to uh, the factory, Paul Newman's factory. We followed, they had a, a 
incredible, incredible. This was one of the most exclusive nightclubs known to happen in the United States, if not in the world. It was incredible. You had uh, the owners were um, Peter Lawford, Paul Newman, uh, Pierre Salinger. Anyway, there was about 12 guys who owned this, and they're all very, very high up on in society. And, and they built this, this exclusive nightclub that nobody could get into. It cost you, I think, something like $25,000 a month, whether you went there or didn't. It cost you like 200000 just to buy a membership into the, to the thing. It was ridiculous. Willie Masconi, Minnesota Fats, had their own pool tables at the back. And, you know, everybody, the Beatles, you know, would come there and the Stones, the, the major artists, you know. I mean, you, you got, you know, everyone. I, I can't even tell you, the name dropping is too immense. It becomes, you know, Judy Garland, you know, the, the major, major artists of the time who wanted to go out but didn't want paparazzi, didn't want anybody around. To, and nobody knew what it was. It was like this old building all up here between Santa Monica and Melrose. And it had no signs. It was all the windows, it was all deteriorated. The whole building was just atrocious. And inside was one of the most extraordinary nightclubs I've ever seen in my life. It was just, the bar alone was the longest bar I'd ever seen in my life. And it was true oak, handcrafted oak bar huge long thing with uh crystal chandeliers huge chandeliers and and there was you know um, crystal uh drinking you know glasses and and real silver silver <laughs> utensils and you know satin uh you know uh, tablecloths it was just absurd it was the elite of the elite and it cost you a fortune and everybody that was anybody got into it they got into it and they had lasted for almost three years. And we played there seven nights a week, straight through. We followed in, the Gordian not opened it. They were a real well-known group. And then uh, Chicago came in and they were very strong by then. They were moving right up the ladder and then boom, they came in there with a second act that came in to take over the, the, the entertainment, dancing, whatever. But uh, they only lasted five days because they got upset at the fact that they couldn't play the, the, the level of intensity that they wanted to play because they, they told them, calm down. The first set, which is at eight, eight o'clock, people are still eating dinner. So just do the first set a little softer. And then, you know, the, the nine o'clock or the 9.30 set, you know, you can pick it up and then of course the last sets you can just wail because it's you know nighttime and it goes forever so um well they couldn't do it they didn't they said no we don't play that game and they pulled and they left and so uh jan martin came over to gazaris and said please help me and i talked to bill and bill says you know this is a big break for you guys go on go for it and so we left and we went into the factory and Van Halen went into took our place. Van Halen stayed there for four years. They didn't beat our record, but they stayed there for four years. Eddie Van Halen and the boys. Yeah, it's a great rock and roll, man. 
was really incredible. You still get back to music? My kids are playing. They play. They play a lot, so yeah, I, I jam with them. But basically, it's it's not. I mean, for me, I, I'm so into what I'm doing now. And you know, you you asked me earlier what what got you into doing, you know, the work that you're doing. I was really privileged. I lived a very privileged life, and uh, I learned really young that when you have something, you better be grateful and thankful. And you better do stuff for people that don't have as much as you do. So that became the motto. And pretty soon I found myself just going out and, and talking to students and people in juvenile. I started in, in, at the library. Winnie Jackson called me up and asked me to come and speak at the library. I guess I must have been 20, 21, 22 at the most. And said, please, can you come down and and speak at the library, you know, and uh, South Central. I said, well, okay, okay. what am I gonna talk about? Oh, no, just come down and, and talk. And I went down there and I, I talked for a little bit. It was very uncomfortable, I was not. I was in acting classes already, I started at 17, because I was still going to college. I went to college while I was working. So I'd work all night and then I'd go to school in the morning and people thought I was nuts. And then I'd come home, rest, go to sleep and then wake up and I'd do my homework in between the sets. And uh, it was kind of intense. Thank God I wasn't an alcoholic or a drug addict. I would have been in a lot of trouble because I wouldn't have been able to do my work. But I was lucky I just never got into it. I wasn't good enough to do drugs. <laughs> you know, you gotta be really good. To, to think that, okay, I can get high right now and go out there and play. I couldn't do that, man. <laughs> you know, this whole idea of getting high and then performing like, oh, Nirvana-ish. I, 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 I got paranoid on grass. I just said, this is not for me, man. <laughs> this is not my thing. And so I just, I just never had to escape. I was very grateful with what was given to me. And so I started going around and pretty soon I, I learned that it was became like a, an incredible, incredible journey of giving. And, and the more I gave, the more strength I got in my art forms. I became a better performer. And I was doing theater at the same time. And it was really intense. It was really good. I was because I was making I was writing the music for uh, the actor studio. Fox Harris was a playwright. and He was working out of the actor studio and they used to do uh, improvisation, well, not uh, avant-garde theater, and out of the actors' theater, actor studio, and we would go there and we we do the music for them for nothing. We we write the scores to their productions. We watch them and, and start playing and writing the music for them. And, and so I got into the actor studio doing that, and uh, I auditioned for the actor studio for months and months and months. I never got in. It's really a trip. That was really really hard. It took me a long time than a year and then uh, I never really got it got in but uh, I ended up doing Zoot Suit and uh, that was theater and then they made me a, a life member of the, of the actor studio which was great I appreciated it I guess it helps if you have a Tony nomination right well yeah that's <laughs> that was great that helped so like what was it like, right, for a kid from East LA with your upbringing to finally find himself on a Broadway stage? Well, you know, coming from the level of understanding that we we're coming from, it was a process. So 
I was ready. You know, luck is what I had. Luck is when I define it as when opportunity meets preparedness. And when you're prepared and the opportunity's there and you do it, then you're lucky. You're really lucky because you were prepared. The opportunity came and you were able to accomplish something. It happened in baseball, happened in theater, happened in music. You know, I ended up uh, helping produce B.B. Uh, King Live in London. I helped produce uh, Eric Clapton's first album, solo album, uh, Motel Shot for Delaney and Bonnie. I helped final mix that. And I became, uh, you know, producing. I started producing. Produced Jerry McGee's work, uh, Chris Christopherson's band. I used to use them a lot. And uh, so I was producing and I was doing theater and I was singing and dancing and you know, so I, I got to tell you, by the time I hit Broadway, I was ready. I mean, I just was, we it was unusual because I'd never been in New York. And what a way to come to New York and starring on Broadway. And uh, I was very fortunate because I had done off, 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 off L.A. theater, which is really far off of the Broadway. So, you know, we, we had done theater for a long time. And I started that in, in college. So it was all mixed together and it was really complex. People say, how can you, you know, you just flew in from, you know, uh, you know, from Morganstown, you know, and uh, then you, you, you went from Morganstown to Pittsburgh and two hours to drive there. And then you, and that was at, uh, you know, three o'clock in the morning. And then you drove there and you got in the airplane and you flew from, you know, Pittsburgh to O'Hare in Chicago and then had 20 minutes to get to the plane, had to rush to the, run to the plane, get on the plane, you flew to LA and then from LA, they drove you to, uh, you know, Port Wainimi for a, a three hour <laughs> discussion and seminar. And then, uh, you know, you come back from there and you're doing, you know, these interviews and, and they say, geez, you know, how do you do that? I think it was harder when I was younger. I mean, this is more organized. It's a little structured. You know, they can only do what I can do. But in the old days, we used to do things we, we could never have done. It was just impossible to do the stuff we were doing. And we did it. And man, it was intense. Because, I mean, it was like you didn't sleep very much. Yeah, that's why, you know, I mean, a lot of my friends died of overdoses. I lost a lot of friends in the business. Talk to me about how you see Latinos portrayed in the media today. What are your thoughts? Latinos in the media are almost non-existent. It's, uh, it's hard to say because we're now more than 16% of the population, I think. But we're less than 2% of the images that we see on film and television and theater. And that's really the, the issue. That really becomes the whole crust of it. Uh, you cannot understand a culture without seeing its art form. It's impossible. And um, so that's why music is so important. Dance and, you know, novelists and biographers, and, you know, actors, and directors, and, you know, the disciplines. You must be, you must see 
Asian art. You must see Latino art. You must see German art, Russian art, to really understand those people. And in this country, American art doesn't have a true picture of its people. And so therefore it's, it's left a huge hole. So it's non-existent. Uh, I thought for sure, because I've been in it for now almost five decades. So it's really become very, very interesting to see that it's, it's gotten worse because not that there are not more people today doing it. There are not that we don't see more major players today. We do. But the relationship of the amount of people that we are to the amount of people that we see, it's, it doesn't even make a dent. I mean, the African-American experience has 12% of the population in this country and there's 17% of the images that you see. So, you know, just give us an opportunity to do 10% of the images. But that would mean that we take it away from the uh, European-based artists that dominate our industry. And somebody's got to give up that space and they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. They don't want to give up that control, you know. When you and I first sat down, right, and I explained the nature of our project, the, the Immigrant Archive Project, I could sense that this whole concept resonated with you. Do you see this work somehow playing a role in portraying our communities in a more realistic light? I, I think that you know, the immigrant story, whether it be from an Asian perspective or an African perspective or an indigenous perspective, because many of the people that are coming here are indigenous, uh, whether it be from a uh, mezclado, that's us, the mixture. Um, Europeans, there's so many Europeans here that have immigrated to this nation, all of them. <laughs> you know, they've been born here, of course, you know, for generations. Some say, oh, we're you know, we're the daughters of the American Revolution, or we're, we're, you know, we were here first. We were the, you know, descendants of the pilgrims. And I said, okay, well, that's a few hundred years old. That's not bad. You know, the Mohawk and the Apache have been here for <laughs> thousands of years. And uh, the, you know, the indigenous people have been here for over 40,000 years. So we've been here a long time. This, that what you've created is, is really fantastic because it allows just people to tell their story. And if people have the time and the energy and they want to see it, there it is. And you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and soon thousands and thousands of stories that you can log into and you'll hear them. And, and they're all people who have had either their parents or their grandparents or themselves, you know, migrate. It's a true gift that you've given us, an ability to look at ourselves and understand ourselves a little bit better. Thank you so much. Thank you. My guest's body of work, while capable of standing shoulder to shoulder with the greatest talents of his generation, has also served as a reflection of who we are, a dignified, hardworking community of doers and dreamers in search of a better life. As a child, my father constantly reminded me that wherever I stood, I represented myself, my family, and my community. And while that may have been a pretty heavy burden to carry for a young kid, I've got to tell you, man, it was good advice, and advice that has served me well over all these years. 
I suspect it's that same sentiment that has guided Edward's entire career in Hollywood. Whether standing on a Broadway stage or a Hollywood set, he's always taken great care to represent the very best in all of us. And by doing so, he's championed an honorable cause, earned the love and respect of a grateful community, and left an indelible impact on the conscience of a nation. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Immigrant Archive Project is edited and co-produced by the incomparable Edie Gonzalez. Our director of photography is Daniel Godoy. For more stories, please take the time to visit us online at immigrantarchiveproject.org. I'm Tony Hernandez. Thanks for listening. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.